All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to Country Drive. I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. And I'm going to tell you right now, today is a big honor for me because I get to introduce one of my all-time heroes, a living legend, Mr. Tony Brown. And I cannot believe you said that, but I'll take it. Uh, well, <laughs> you're probably going to hear a lot of compliments from me today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Tony, I want to start off by asking you before we dig into your uh, long-storied career. A few years ago, I picked up a copy of your book, and it really touched me because I was simply going to order a book that I thought was just going to tell me about everything related to Tony Brown's career, all the people he's touched on the way. When I got about halfway through it, I stopped and said, shoot, this is a book about relationships. This is a book that can be a guiding light to anyone going into any career. Well, it is about my career, but it it is about the people that... The intersections in my career is what it's about. Or where I would meet someone and something would change immediately. Well, what do these relationships mean to you at this point in your career? I mean, if you were talking to people that are trying to kind of learn how they need to guide themselves to their career, how important is it to look outside yourself and understand the value of connection and relationship? Well, I learned doing the book. I sort of it brought back a lot of memories about all the people that are in the book and why I put them in the book. And I didn't just include just artists I had worked with or played for. I included my doctor, uh, a lot of different people in in different parts of my life. Uh, everybody just made such an impact on me. A lot of it, you know, I learned never burn a bridge and always listen. You know, you can talk, but listen. Uh, Will Jennings is a close friend of mine. He should have been in this book, but he's in L.A. Will wrote, he's a songwriter who lived in Nashville for a long time and wrote a lot of country songs. But uh, he wrote the song for the Titanic for Celine Dion, Mm -hmm. and he wrote, I'm so glad I'm standing here today for Cocker. So he won two Oscars. But I did two Jimmy Buffett records, and he co-wrote both those albums, and I was on a boat with him. Jimmy said, go go hang out with Will today, and I'll meet you guys later. So we're out there on the boat, and Will said, man, I just wrote a new song for Steve Winwood. Will you listen to it? I got a demo. I said, sure. He played me a demo of Higher Love. I said, that's a hit. He said, wow. you think so? I said, absolutely. <laughs> I had no idea how big of a hit that would be. But he said, you know, man, just listen to me. Always follow up. You know, If someone calls you, follow up. Even if it's the, if it's a no, follow up. You know, don't blow people off. It, it it will pay off one day. You know, so I always do that. If somebody gives me a song that, that I don't like, I'll listen to it. If there's a phone number or an email, I'll follow up on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to say no, but better than just ghosting them. You know? Yes, sir. Uh, well, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about the backstory. So how did you get your start? Well, you know, I was my, my dad was an evangelist, so I was raised in gospel music. My life was nothing but church. That's why my book is called Elvis Straight to Jesus. When I got the book deal, the book people wanted to call it Tony Brown's Look at Nashville, a Diversity of the City. I said, no, man. I'm not a celebrity, so it's got to be a better title than that. And then I said, it's... You know, my life was the church until I was 19 years old. I mean, it was nothing but church. I was not allowed to listen to anything but religious music. And then after uh, 
I started, got out of gospel music. The biggest act I ever played for as a piano player was Elvis Presley. So mm-hmm. uh, it was the church and Elvis. And then when I got into producing records, the biggest act I ever produced was George Strait. So basically my, my life was the church, Elvis Presley and George Strait. And my manager said, let's call it Elvis Strait to Jesus. And the only hoop we had to jump through was with Elvis Presley Enterprises to make sure that the E wasn't bigger than the J or the S. I said, well, Elvis is bigger than straight, but he's not bigger than Jesus, so no problem. Wow. But that's all they wanted to make sure that the E was not, we didn't like capitalize on that. It's a little strange, but yeah, it's but pretty interesting. Point, but you'd expect that. You yeah, know? absolutely. That's not Elvis, that's his, his enterprises, Elvis Presley Enterprises. What What was Elvis like? He was just like us. He just conversations with him would be just like this right now. He he was basically a blue collar guy who happened to be a big star. He, you know, he didn't didn't really realize he was Elvis. I don't think he was so down to earth and just a, a sweet guy, just a sweet Southern guy. Uh, and so, like hanging out with you guys in the lobby of your place here. The way we were chatting, mm-hmm. if you're around him, that's the conversation that would be with him. Because my first job with Elvis was with a group called Voice. And I was hired to play piano with three guys. And our job was he would call or someone would call from his office and say, hey, fly to L.A. and check in the Holiday Inn. Elvis is in Beverly Hills. And when he gets up, we'll call you and you come to the house. And we go to the house and he'd sing gospel songs all night long. Then the next call would be, hey, Elvis is in Palm Springs, flat of Palm Springs, check in the Hilton. When he gets up, we'll call you and you come up to the house. So I was around his house a lot, and I saw that side of him. Once I got the big job playing for the TCB band, I never saw him again. You know, he got there just before the, he came on stage. He was flying to the next city by the time we finished playing CC Rider as he was going off stage. So I wouldn't have missed that first Mickey Mouse job with voice, but uh, I, I'm honored I got to play with the, the TCB band. To me, the thrill of playing, being worthy of playing in that band with Ronnie Tut and James Burton was as big as of a thrill as playing for Elvis Presley because at that point, I wasn't into music. I was just in, he was a celebrity, but I didn't really understand music. When I got with Amy Lou Harris on our bus, all we did was listen to music, and I learned about rock and roll, bluegrass, country music, you know, uh, honky tonk music, Bakersfield country. You know, I learned going going on tour with Emmy Lou Harris was like going to college. I learned all about music, and so when I played with the Elvis, being worthy of playing in that band was the big deal for me. Someone said, "What's the most exciting thing about playing with Elvis?" I said, "Well, first of all, Space Odyssey." And then Ronnie Tuck goes into that jungle beat. He comes out on C.C. Rider. Man, it's a rush. It's a bigger rush than mushrooms, man. It's like, I mean, hold on. And you know you know you're in the big time when that happens. Oh, yeah. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. Do you remember the day he, uh, do you remember the day he died? Oh, I sure do. I was at the airport here in uh, Nashville. We had a show in Portland, Maine on the 17th. It was the first day of the next tour. And so the show plane, if the tour originated on the East Coast, the show plane originated in L.A., picked up Burton, Ronnie Tutt, Jerry Chef, 
all the L.A. guys. Stopped in Vegas, got the conductor Joe Gershio in the horn section and the Sweet Inspirations. And then came to Nashville and picked up uh, myself, David Briggs, the Stamps Quartet, and voice, and then we'd go to the gig. So we were waiting on the plane to land uh, coming from uh, L.A. It was a beautiful sunny day on the 16th. All of a sudden, this big storm, man, just like crazy, like a tornado or something. We were in a private uh, airport lounge, and uh, a bunch of these National Guard guys came into the the uh, lounge where we were to get out of the rain. And I saw one of them talking on his uh, his phone. It wasn't a cell phone. It was one of those big, long things. Mm-hmm. And I heard him say, so, Mr. Presley, what happened? And then I... I overheard that. And so my first thought was, something's happened to Vernon. And then about five seconds after that, Tom Diskin, who was the colonel's lieutenant, walked in and said, hey, guys, the tour's off. Go home, we'll call you. Didn't even tell us what happened. (coughs) On on the way home, on on my car radio, I heard Elvis Presley had been found dead in his bathroom at Graceland. They didn't even tell us he had died. And my first thought was, what am I going to do? Because I'd, I'd already spent the money I was going to make. <laughs> I lived a paycheck ahead. And it's so weird, you know, two weeks before that day, I was at a restaurant with David Briggs, who was the other keyboard player with Elvis. I played acoustic piano, and David played electric piano. And we had just gotten that book that Red West and Sunny West had written called Elvis, What Happened? And it told all that inside stuff about their wilder days back in the day when they were wild. Mm-hmm. And I was going, man, this is going to kill Elvis. Didn't even think how ironic that would come back to haunt me that I said that, you know. Uh, but he he wasn't he wasn't a healthy man, so he he went to the bathroom and had a heart attack and died. Yeah, you know, I've wondered. I saw the movie and. It was decent. I thought it lacked some depth, and I would have wondered. It, se- it seemed like the colonel had him so isolated, people couldn't even get to You're him. You're talking de- about the Boz Lerman movie, right? Yes, sir. Yes. I saw that, too. You know, it was a, it, I was a little disappointed. I think uh, the guy that played Elvis is the best Elvis I've ever seen. Austin? <laughs> yeah, Austin, he's the best I've ever seen. He had his talk down, his laugh, everything about him. Tom Hanks as a colonel got on my nerves. But... uh a lot of the stuff in there was so exaggerated, mm-hmm. like that scene at the end in Vegas where he fired the colonel. That didn't happen. I was there. I was playing with Elvis. We only played Vegas once. That was that time near the end. And that did not happen. I mean, uh, the story of, of what the colonel and the reason Elvis played Vegas, the story about the colonel's gambling and all that stuff was true. But that's episode where he fired the colonel and all that kind of stuff on stage. That didn't happen. But uh, the, the Colonel and Elvis's relationship was so messed up. The Colonel Elvis was scared of the Colonel. And uh, it, it just was a dysfunctional relationship. I remember we'd go to Palm Springs with Voice, and, uh, and the Colonel lived in Palm Springs. And we'd be in the living room, and someone would say, Hey, E, Colonel's coming over. And E would just get uptight and go to his bedroom. And they'd come out and say, hey, you guys go back to the hotel. <laughs> so we'd leave the, we'd leave the house. Right. So it wasn't a good relationship at all. Yeah, it just seemed like when you were watching the movie, like he, the colonel, had isolated him so much that even for mm-hmm. people that wanted to help him, they couldn't get to him. Right. You know, if, if he could have 
if he could have had the Red West, Sunny West, Dave Hibbler, all those, the Memphis Mafia, as they call them, they had such a circle around him. If he could have had some healthy people around him, he could have got healthy. He, he Maybe he could have lived longer. I mean, he did have health problems anyway, but uh, he probably could have lived longer. But, you know, he sang great till the very end. He oh, was yeah. definitely overweight. I wouldn't call him obese, but he was definitely close to being fat. But he still looked better than any of us on stage. I always thought if I could look like Elvis, I gotta have anybody I wanted. <laughs> Even at the end, you know, he just had—he just was a, such a handsome man. And and if you watch that show from uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, on CBS, his voice was still there, man, mm -hmm. at the bitter end. He couldn't do the kicks, but he could still sing his butt off. Well, you, on top of being the father of the Americana genre, have had such an impact on country music. So I wanted to ask you about the next artist that you toured with, and you've forever been associated with some of the greatest vocalists in the world, Emily Harris. And is it true that your your journey to country music essentially started with her playing you, He Stopped Loving Her Today? Well, you know, actually, when, when I, I was with Voice, and eventually... Elvis put us on tour instead of just being on the, around the house. So I, we actually started opening up the show. So we'd do our two songs, and then the comedian would, would do his thing, and then the Sweet Inspirations would sing, then Elvis would come on. I would sit right behind Glenn D. Harden, Elvis' piano player for 20 years, and watch him play the show. And I was going, God, I could play this show. It's so easy. I could do this. And one night he said, man, I'm leaving this show. I'm, I'm going to go tour with Emmylou Harris. I said, who is that? He says, a new country artist that Warner's L.A. just signed. And uh, me and Burton played on the record, and she's doing a world tour, and I can't do both both gigs, so I'm quitting. I was going, man, if you do put my name in the hat. And that's how I got my job. I hustled it and got it. Mm -hmm. I had no rehearsal, but it was, it was such an easy gig. And then when I got, when Elvis died, I'm going, now what am I going to do? Because after Elvis... I'm not going to go come back to Nashville and play for Eddie Rabbit or somebody. Uh, I mean, no, no, I'm not dissing Eddie. I'm just saying I'm not going to do that because that band was like, it's the top. So I'm plugging songs for David Briggs' publishing company. And he said, hey, man, Emmylou Harris's manager just called me and said, Glenn D. Harden had just quit and was touring on tour with John Denver. And they want me to come play and I said I'm not going but I said you might be interested I said oh man because after Elvis died I bought all those Emmy Lou records I wanted to see why Glenn D quit and I was, she became my favorite artist and turned me on to country music so I said sure so I had to go try out audition so I'd never had audition before so I thought what am I going to play for her audition so I go out and I learned two songs and the two I had worked up she asked me to do I got the gig. The funny thing is, Rodney Crowell had just quit to become an artist, and his replacement was a 19-year-old Ricky Skaggs. Wow. And so here is Ricky Skaggs on fiddle, and I'm on piano, and uh, I'm with Emily Lou Harris. And that, that gig was musically more fun than the Elvis gig because on the bus we were like a, a tribe, you know, with Elvis and Giggers, 20 backup singers, 15-piece horn section, 10-piece band, and it was 
split up in groups, little cliques, you know. So you didn't hang out with everybody. Nobody hung out. So with Amy Louie, was hanging out and playing music all the time and her talking about music. And we were in Oklahoma City at a truck stop. And uh, she said, Tony, go over there and put a quarter in there and play. He stopped loving her today. So I did that, and it just blew me away. And I I knew who George Jones was, but I didn't study George Jones. You know, the thing about Emmy, after that, I started studying. Like, she said, listen to Vern Gosden. Listen to, to George. And listen to Tammy. And listen to the, the heart, you know. So I started studying country artists and started realizing the artists that I liked were just certain kinds. There were singers like, like George and Tammy and, and Vern Gosden. That's why I loved working with Ronnie, Ronnie Dunn. I mean, after all the years of they've cut some of my favorite records, the only single the year they ever won for CMA Awards was the song I produced called Believe, mm-hmm. which I can't believe Neon Moon didn't win because it's the best country record ever made. But Ronnie singing Believe, I can't believe I cut that record. And it's it, it's like it'll tear your heart out. When they sing, <laughs> a song, whatever. No, you're good. Uh, I wanted to ask you, moving out of you know your time as a musician and the transition to A and R. Um, you were RCA. RCA. I, I, you know, then after playing with Emmy, she got pregnant, and now the hot band. There's nothing to do. I, I, I'm playing with Emmy Lou. I have no gig. So I'm going, now what am I going to do? After Elvis, I'm with Emmy Lou. Well, Rodney's decided he had a record deal then, so he got the the hot band, and he put together the Cherry Bombs. And it's the first poster said, Rodney Crowell and the hot band, the Cherry Bombs. And we would play nightclubs up and down the coast of L.A. and Long Beach and Santa Cruz, San Francisco. And we played for The Door. And we'd just split the door. And in the audience, you look out, out across the audience, there'd be Linda Ronstadt sitting out there mm. and Billy Gibbons. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And sometimes we'd ride and say, we didn't make anything tonight. I didn't care. I was playing for the... It was fun. And uh, and then after Rodney couldn't have a hit, he married Roseanne Cash. And then we cut a couple records with her, Seven Year Ache and uh, her first album. So we, the Cherry Bombs became Roseanne Cash's band. And then uh, after that, Roseanne got pregnant. <laughs> so I thought, man, I got to get a real job. This, this, this is getting old. So I came back to Nashville, and David Briggs once again said, well, man, you can plug songs for me one more time. So I'm plugging songs for his publishing company. And I said, David, and this, he's in my book. He's one of those guys. He played piano with Elvis. But it, I plugged songs for him. We became close. He became my best buddy. So I'm plugging songs this second time. And I said, man, I got to get a real job. I wish I could get a job with a record company. He said, you know what? Uh, Jerry Bradley, who's in my book as well, he just passed away. He ran RCA, and he had just put that album out called The Outlaws, Waylon Willie. First ever Tom platinum Paul, album. First platinum album in country music. So New York, how these these uh, these labels head headquarters said there's something going on in Nashville. Oh yeah. So they told Jerry, start a pop label. 
but you got to put the A&R guy in, in Los Angeles. He said, so they're going to give Jerry a pop label, and he's worried they're going to shove some pop A&R guy from New York, some Yankee down his throat, and he will not have it. I'll tell him to hire you, and he'll hire you. And he did. He told Jerry, Jerry hired me. I moved to L.A., and their label lasted two years and folded. Because when I went in pop music, the things that I liked in 78 when I moved to L.A. was that uh, Steely Dan, mm -hmm. Ronstadt, Eagles. But what was coming in was punk, B-52s, the Ramones. I, I didn't get that stuff, you mm -hmm. know. So everything that I liked was going out. And then just before the, the our label closed, disco was coming in. So they closed the label, and Jerry said, you can stay out in L.A., and I'll get you a job with the pop division, or you can come back to Nashville. I said, I want to come home, man. I've just learned how much I love the South. The, living out of here has been eye-opening, but I want to come back to Nashville. So I came back to Nashville and got a job as manager of A&R. That's the bottom of the heap. But he wouldn't let me produce any records. I wanted to produce records. He wouldn't let me do that. But I did sign a band called Alabama. I've heard of them. And I didn't have any idea how big they would be. And I, all of a sudden, they gave me... I was the A&R guy of all time, man. They were the biggest group ever signed. And so that's why two years later, Jimmy Bowen in 84 uh, took over MCA. He stole me away from from Galani because I was the A&R guy that signed Alabama. So I was the A&R guy. Then I went over there, and I told Bowen, I said, I'll come, but I want to produce records. And he said, you come over here. I'll train you to be a great producer. And he did. Alabama has, do they still hold the record for the most straight number ones? I don't know. I don't know that. You know, it's funny. Jim McBride was on here, and we were having a laugh about um, a, a former music executive that's since passed that fired Johnny Cash. But he also told, told Jim one time uh, he had Alabama on his desk, but he didn't hear it. So I'm thankful. It must have been Rick Blackburn. There you go. <laughs> I'm thankful you're the man that heard it. Yeah, you know, it's like... You, the thing is, when I heard them, they played CRS, which was the country radio seminar, and all the labels fight to get their artists on there, and somehow they were on an independent label, and I have no idea how their manager, Larry McBride, got them on that show back in that day in 78. But he did, and they stole the show, and I remember that at the office the next day, I was talking to Joe Galani, he was my boss, with Jerry Bradley, he said... Hey, man, did you see that band last night? I said, yeah. He says, you should sign them. You're a young A&R guy. If you don't, I will. But you can sign them and it'd make your, make, it, make your job much better. So I listened to him. Wow. Joe's in my book, too. Wow. See, just stuff like that. Joe Galani was under Jerry Bradley. When Jerry Bradley retired, Joe took over. So uh, it's people like that that I worked with, all the people in, my, in the record business, Tim Dubois, Jimmy Bowen, Jerry Bradley, Joe Galante, they're in my book because they really influenced me. And they were all, Joe Galante was a money guy. He came from New York. He was the bottom line kind of guy. Jerry Bradley just was just a, his dad was Owen Bradley, my God. They're the reason Music Row exists. Nashville Sound era. Yeah, I mean, they created the Nashville Sound. Uh, Tim Dubois, who I worked with, 
we had a label together, Universal South. He wrote When I Call Your Name. Mm-hmm. But he also wrote uh, uh, that song, the uh, Jerry Reed song. She got the gold. She got mine. the gold mine. I, I got, got the, the shaft. shaft. So he was a songwriter. So the, we, the, the, people were some people were creative. Some were bottom line guys. Jimmy Bowen came from L.A. He produced Sinatra, Dean Martin. Came to Nashville and and made Hank Senior, Hank Junior, a star. And everybody hated him because they thought he was a carpetbagger, but. His records on Hank Jr. just kill me, oh, and, and when he when he asked me to come work for him, everybody thought that they said he was a bad guy, and I said I don't think so. I said he may be ruthless, but he's not bad. He's just he's just he's L.A. man, and well, uh, and he hired me, and he, everything he said I'll, I'll teach you to be a great producer. He said you find me something new, I'll take care of the superstars. So so I found Patty Loveless. Lyle Lovett, Steve Earle, the Mavericks, Trisha Yearwood. And he let me he let me sign those acts. Yeah, we got some of those names coming up. Joey, what did you have for me over there? So Alabama is the most successful country band in music history or country statistically. Stati- statistically it is, with forty one number one country records. Yeah, but I was talking about the straight number ones and I think oh, it was oh, I think straight. it was twenty one. Okay, okay, okay. Twenty one straight. I think they had yeah. 21 straight in the 80s. That makes sense because everything they put out, you know, back in those days, uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s, 21. the billboard charts was, was what you went by. Yeah. And the life of a record was usually 13 weeks. And uh, that's why George Strait has 60 number ones because you could put out three singles a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that the records that uh, on the charts, it takes 30 to 40 weeks to go number one. And then, like, when Cruise for Florida Georgia Line got number one, it stayed number one for 50 weeks. I remember back in the days of my straight records, if a straight song stayed number one three weeks, it was like we threw parties. Right. It's not that way anymore. You know? uh, when you start to transition into production uh, and you become one of the greatest producers of all time, I have to ask you a question because I hear, always hear people ask songwriters and artists, first time you heard yourself on the radio. Do you remember the first time you ever heard a song you had produced on the radio? I think the first time I heard, yeah, probably, I don't remember the exact moment, but it was had to be. The reason I left RCA was because they wouldn't let me produce records. But before I left, Nora Wilson, who was my, he was the VP of A&R, my boss in A&R, I was complaining to him. I said, man, I... I want to produce a country record, but they say you don't have a track record. And I said, well, if you don't have a, if you don't have an opportunity, how do you get a track record? He said, well, I got to do two more sides on Steve Warner. Why don't you co-produce them with me? So we we did a uh, Lonely Women Make Good Lovers at Midnight Fire, and they went number one. And I remember hearing those on the radio, and it was, it was a lot of pride. And someone said, do I miss playing piano? Now that I'm a producer, I said no, because I actually experienced the same feeling producing records as I did playing piano because I was never a great piano player. I was a very adequate. I never did a gig I couldn't do. I mean, I didn't play jazz. I mean, I, I could play. Elvis songs were pretty simple. Emmy Lou, pretty simple. Although uh, I never played with the band where they gave piano players like take take it for like 16 bars because in gospel music, you don't do that. Okay. So we're doing Ain't Living Long Like This, and Ricky just joined the band, and Amy said, take it, Tony. 
I'm just brand new, and I take it. It's in the key of B, and I don't play good in B, so I I do what piano players, the cheater's code is. You do an octave and a fifth and just bang like Little Richard. Bang, 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 bang. A couple of Jerry Lewis's up and down the keyboard, kick the piano stool over. The crowd goes wild. And Emmy, Emmy smiled big, and then Ricky Skaggs leaned over the piano and says, Hey, Tony, if you can't play a better solo than that tomorrow night, give it back to me. <laughs> and I went, Well, you little arrogant, talented guy. <laughs> I think I had a bad word after arrogant, but I, I won't say it on the air here. But uh, I said, You can have it, man. I just, I'm not a solo player like that, you know. But I had never experienced that. That was traumatic. But when somebody says take it, you got to do it. So well, I did it. I've seen you knock out some solos on the Elvis video, and I've seen well, some. That, your... You know that solo where Elvis introduces me. I had never done that where they introduced on the piano. Mm-hmm. I'd never been in a band where they did that either. So the first night they did that, I was going, man, I'm caught off guard here. What do I do? So I had seen Glenn D who is is not like a fancy piano player. We play a lot alike, a lot of pretty gospel. And he just did little boogie-woogie stuff, but it wasn't nothing spectacular. So I tried that, and, and I was going, this sucks really bad, and I'm sure that Ronnie Tutt and James Burton are going to say, hey, Tony, you're not good enough. You need to quit. So I learned this thing from a band in Nashville called uh, Barefoot Jerry. They had a song called Two Mile Pike on their record. It was a piano thing. And so I, you know, the, I learned the intro as my solo, and I played it for the, for the band, Elvis's band. I said, I'm going to play this tonight for my solo. And they all went, oh, man, that's cool. And now if you, you, you can go on my website with TonyBrownEnterprises.com, and there's this little video of somebody captured. Dave Grohl actually captured it for HBO Sonic mm-hmm. Highways uh, where Elvis introduces me, and I play that. And I must tell you, I'm, I haven't impressed myself. And it's it, on YouTube. Yeah, I know. And, you know and, and, and the thing about it is, it's it's one of those kind of things as a piano player, there's things you can do that look harder than they are. It's not improvising. It's actually a it's a, a little run that you learn. And it's, I'm not improvising. I can't improvise. But it looks harder than it is. But everybody thinks it's just the cooler than thing they've ever, ever seen. So I'm going to let it go. That's great. You know, You've mentioned Rodney Crowell, and I'm about to ask you about Steve Earle. Do you know if I could go back in time and be a fly on the wall? I'd probably be at Guy Clark and Susan's house when they were having those guitar pulls with Tal's Van Zandt. Oh, yeah. I bet that would have been amazing. Oh, man. You know, being around them, you know what I learned learned about being around Rodney, Towns, Suzanne, Robert Earl King, Lyle Lovett, all that whole kind of crew that they hung out with. Is if you could if you could mingle with them if you were worthy of hanging with them, it raised the bar oh, yeah. of, of of the integrity of of the musician that you were. Mm-hmm. And if you can learn to play a hit song that's on the radio, you could just copy what some session player did with a big star. Well, that's the sense of accomplishment too, but it's not the same as actually sitting in guy's living room and him playing something and him saying, "Hey, Tony, get on the piano." And you 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 feel like you're the king. He's like, oh, what key are you in? <laughs> Hopefully not B. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I just been around them. It raised the level of everything. I remember one of the greatest records I ever played on was 
John Starling. Do you know who he is? Mm-mm. He's an Americana guy. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but I got asked to play on that record. And uh, when I die and I have a memorial service, I'm going to have him play a little verse and chorus of a song called I'm on the other side of life now. And I played piano on it. And John Cowan was playing bass. And there's all these Americana bluegrassers on the session. And I was just barely touching the keys, thinking if I if they if I played where they could hear me, they would say, Stop playing. <laughs> That's how scared I was, but I was playing. And when I hear it back, it sounds good. Cause you know I was playing, I was really digging in deep and that and playing with those kind of artists like guy and those kind of songwriters it's all about feeling and all about heartfelt and about not about what you can play it's what you don't play and when you do play something it's got to mean something if it's only two notes i mean if you listen to nora jones such a simple little piano player Mm -hmm. she is but every every little note she hits is just like it's that one G note just sounds better than it does if I were to hit the same note, you know. I just learned, I learned a lot being around uh, playing in bands and playing with different kind of artists. Growing up in gospel music, I go back and listen to that music, and it's so simple, and I, I don't really relate to a lot of it. But I know that Amy Lou loved the fact that I came from gospel music, and Winona wanted me to produce her record because I came from gospel music. So, you know, and you, if you listen to, like, pop artists like Whitney Houston, a lot, of, a lot of black artists, Mary J. Blige, they all came from the church. So the church still is a foundation for music, period, whether it be country, pop, R&B, hip-hop. It all goes back to the church because it's about feeling, you know? Well, I want to ask you about um, Class of 86, I have always had this theory that 86 and 89 are two of the most important 89 years. 89 is the, is the year they call the class of 89. Yeah. the big year. But before that, they had the class of 86, and you're you're such an important part of that year that I want to ask you about it because you had you know honky-tonk era, Nashville sound era, outlaw era, and things are always... It's easier for historians to lump everything into one. I don't necessarily think that's fair. But in 86... Country music gets a kind of an early dose of what the class of '89 is going to be. You got four different artists. I was wondering where you're going with this. Yeah, I, I was. You got four different artists that all they really have in common is they debuted at the same time. But they're they're going to start taking country in a lot of different eras, coming off of neo traditional and urban cowboy movement. And you're there right at the beginning. Wow, love it, and Steve Earle. And I wanted to ask you just what that meant to you to be a part of helping to find some diversity that kind of stays true to traditional but does find some progression in the, within the genre. Well, you know, when I signed Steve and Lyle Lovett and, then, and even Patty Loveless, uh, it's all because Jimmy Bowen said, go find me something. I'll, I'll produce Greenwood and Oak Ridge Boys and Reba and George. Find me something new. And uh, when I found Steve, he was on CBS at the time before it became Sony, and they were cutting like rockabilly records, and I, and I didn't, I wasn't impressed at all. But he was writing for the Oak Ridge Boys Publishing Company, who I played with the Oak Ridge Boys, and I went on a writing trip with him, and uh, he played me all these songs he was writing for his next CBS record, 
he played me up, My Old Friend the Blues, uh, Guitar Town, Hillbilly Highway. And I said, man, that's so much better than what you've been doing. He says, oh, I know, this is what I really want to do, but I uh, I got to cut my next record real soon, and I got to play these songs. And if they pick up uh, my deal, I, I'm going to cut these songs. I said, well, don't play them those songs. They'll, they'll definitely pick it up. He said, no. I said, let them drop you, and I'll sign you. I thought he was the next Waylon. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was Mellencamp or Springsteen. That's what the press said. But I thought he was the next Waylon or, or Rodney or something. And I said, don't play him those songs, man. He said, no, they'll, they'll hate them. I said, well, if they, if they drop you, I'll sign you. So he called me when we got back and said, well, they dropped me. You going to sign me? I said, yeah. So I go to Jimmy Bowen, and Bowen said, I can't understand a word he's saying. Go cut these five songs. Cut demos in so I can understand maybe two words, and I, maybe I'll let you sign him. So we, I went and told Steve that. If you know Steve, he's kind of guy that might carry a switchblade in his back pocket. So he said, oh, yeah, right, Jimmy Bowen. So uh, we did that, and Bowen said, okay, one more thing. His teeth were rotten. They're, they're just... He's a junkie. I didn't know that. He was yeah. a junkie. He said, tell him he's got to get his teeth fixed because he looks like crap. And I was going, oh, sure, he's going to pull that knife out now. And <laughs> so I go back. I said, hey, he said, but tell him we'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. So I said, hey, Steve, one more thing Bowen wants me to t- tell you. Got to get your teeth fixed, but we'll pay for it. He said, oh, man, that's cool. I've been wanting to get them fixed. They look bad. <laughs> And so we fixed his teeth. I, I went in with Richard Bennett and Emory Gordy. We cut Guitar Town and all that stuff. We worked them up as demos. So when we went and cut those, we didn't, like, you know, when I cut records for Reba or George or Vince, we'd learn them on the spot. The, 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 the arrangement happens on, on the floor. We'd change, we'd change it around. We went in and cut that album. We had already worked all those songs out arrangement-wise. Richard Bennett, all those good those Dano guitar parts were, were worked out. So we basically just performed it, which is sort of the way Springsteen seems to do it with the E Street Band. And that record, it took 10 years ago go, but to this day, I think it's the one record that in my entire catalog that holds up to me as a really a great record. What's it like to produce Copperhead Road? That was the last record I did with Steve. We went to Memphis cut in Ardent Studios and that's when Steve was at the height of his uh, junkie he was doing heroin in the control room and uh, it was hard it was hard but by then we had become kind of friends and also nemesis you know he, he was starting to feel like he, he was getting pretty cocky by then I never felt like I had made it, you know, even though I was working with Steve Earle and it was, that was cooler than working with a lot of other country artists that, that maybe were having hits that just weren't cool at all. But uh, he, he was feeling, he was feeling pretty cocky and he gave me a lot of crap as we were cutting that record. But uh, I remember when we cut that song, I was going, this something about this feels like this is really important. Oh, yeah. And I didn't realize it. And then when we came back, 
to, to turn it in, Jimmy Bowen said, I'm not putting this record out. This is a piece of crap. And uh, Steve wanted the cover to be that skull and crossbones. Mm-hmm. He did everything to piss off Jimmy Bowen. So Irving Azoff, who ran the West Coast, had become a fan of mine. He loved, he, I'd signed Nancy Griffith. He loved Nancy Griffith. He loved Lyle. He loved all the stuff I was doing. Irving, probably one of the most progressive managers ever in the history of pop music. So he said, you know what, T, that's why Bowen called me T. T, I'm going to tell Irving he can have this record. I said, piece of crap, I'm not putting it out. He'll probably take it because he likes you. So I'm going to give it to him to put out. If he wants to put it out, I'm not putting it out. So I, I, I left Bowen's office with my tail between my legs. I go back to my office, and a couple of days later, I get a phone call. And it's Irving A's office. He says, hey, t- Tony, it's Irving. Listen, I just listened to this Steve Earle record, Copperhead Road. It's awesome. I'm going to put it out, man. He said, but I'm going to tell Bowen I hate it, too. Bowen hates it. But I'm going to tell him I hate it, too. Because if I tell him I like it, he won't let me have it. So I'm going to tell him I, I hate it too, so don't believe him. I love it. Okay? Just wanted you to know. <laughs> That's funny. And so it came out on Uni Records. And it was the, it was a big hit around the world. I mean, I had oh, no yeah. idea how big Copperhead Road was. It was the biggest record we made. And it never came out in, on the Nashville label. And to this day, you go to Sydney, Australia, and you go in a bar and they're all the bar bands are playing Copperhead Road. Joey, you might want to fact check me on this, but I think recently Tennessee named it the state song. Copperhead Road. The things happening on that record sonically, man, you killed it. Oh, yeah, the bagpipes and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that was pretty wild. We were cutting at Ardent, and R.E.M. was cutting at Ardent, too. That's where ZZ Top used to cut in Memphis, and R.E.M., and we were cutting there. That's why Steve wanted to be cool. He wanted to cut there. And uh, so it, it, we were in the right vibe to cut a record like that. Uh, but I listen to that record now, and it's an, it's an important record. I know it is. But I didn't realize how important it was at, at the time. Wow. There we go. Just... I mean, the few records I have done where I've, I've known how important they were when I cut How Do I Live with Trisha Yearwood for Con Air, the film. Lee and Rhymes had cut it, and Jerry Bruckheimer didn't like her version of it. Yeah, and so they, Kathy Nelson, who was the head of uh, film and music, said, "Let's go meet with Jerry Bruckheimer." He said, "I want you to cut, recut this." I said, "Well, what's wrong with that's her version?" He said, "It doesn't sound like I want it to sound. I want it to sound like Celine Dion." So he played me a Celine Dion record, and and the scene that he wanted at the end where the plane crashes and Las Vegas. I said, I can do that with mm-hmm. Patricia Yearwood. He said, well, go do it. I said, why don't you use the Celine Dion? He said, too expensive. I, I can't, you know, they'll, they'll charge me a fortune just to sink it for this movie. So cut me a country artist. Mm-hmm. So I went to Nashville and we cut How Do I Live with Tricia with 60-piece string orchestra. And Jerry Bruckheimer was on the... There's a thing called ISDN lines where a guy can sit in L.A. at a studio and listen to what you're doing in Nashville. And we cut it when he would, I would do something. He say, "I love that. What is that? Make that louder." And so we cut it. And and when uh, they came up for a Grammy, you know, Lee Ann Rhymes was up for a Grammy with Trisha Yearwood, 
and we won the Grammy. And when I hear that record, that's a great sounding record. I don't care if I did do it. It sounds great. It just sounds big and pop. You know, I love the fact, I love the rawness of, of uh, Steve Earle. I love the the quirkiness of Lyle Lovett. But I love big sounding records. My favorite record of all times was Asia by Steely Dan. That's the most perfect record ever made, in my mm. opinion. It's, it's perfect. Everything about it is perfect. And How Do I Live has that kind of vibe to it. It's just a perfect record. I did a record on Lionel Richie four years ago called Tuskegee, which is I'm really proud of that record. I'm going to ask you about it soon. Cause it's, and it's, uh, it's and one of the biggest records he's had in a long time. What you know? Speaking of something that's happened recently, in '88, you helped to debut Patty Loveless. What does that mean to you as a producer when you see her go into the Hall of Fame these years later? It makes me cry. <laughs> did you produce Timber? I sure did. That was the um, about the fourth album I did on her. Me and Emery Gordy. And you know, when an artist when I signed the labels. Every every lawyer wants to get them in like a two album deal mm -hmm. firm. Like they'll make two. You promise me you put out two albums. Well, back in those days, they say no. We'll put out a single, and if it goes top ten, maybe we'll put out another single. And if that goes top ten, maybe we'll do an album. This may take two years, and then finally you get an album. They say we want to sign an album, and the attorney goes, "They just had three top ten singles. We want two firm." So. You give them too firm. Well, Timber was on the Honky Tonk Angel album, and that was the album was platinum, and that Timber was the number one some big song. Mm -hmm. And the deal had come up for it to where the option was not the the artist. See, every other option is the first is the artist option. Do they want to stay with the label or do they want to leave? Depending on the the relationship. But this at this point it was the label's option to pick up. Her option, and so Emery Gordy was married to Patty. He said, "Listen, CBS Epic Records wants to sign Patty. They're really into her, and and nobody here, but you like her. Jimmy Bowen didn't like her. Bruce Hinton didn't like her. Borchetta didn't really like her that much." He said, well, "Let us go." I said, "You know, I'll do that." So so I went to Bruce Hinton. I said, "You know, nobody here likes Patty Loveless." Let's just let her go to CBS. They really want to sign her. He said, fine with me. She goes and she cuts line sheeting. Cold, dead, <laughs> blame, blame it on your heart. Yeah. And she won single of the year artist, female artist, album of the year, and cut the best records. You don't even know who I am. All those are great records. And to this day, she thanks me for that. That well, that, that would have never happened at MCA. And that's the kind of A&R person I always wanted to be. I wanted to help the artist, you know. I, I wanted, to, I would have loved to kept her, but I, I'd gotten smart enough to know, man, what good would it do to keep her hostage here, just for my pride, or help her out? And everybody remembers that I let her go to CBS, and everybody thinks that maybe I care about music. <laughs> Amen. Okay. You know, good for her. I, I grew up, the reason I asked about Timber specifically is I can remember for whatever reason, whether it happened once or numerous times, I remember before church on Sunday and that, that blaring from the entertainment system. Um, and I didn't know that she had had moments where people thought she wouldn't be a good fit at a record label. So I'm grateful to you because that's amazing for her growth. I think one of the things about being an artist is 
just because one door closes, there's there's plenty more that can open, and that's another you know theme Absolutely. that we we roll with in this show. You know, when she was inducted into the Hall of Fame this year, uh, Emery Gordy, her husband, he's kind of kind of feeble right now. Uh, he turned around and said, "You're my hero." Well, for people just listening, I can see on your face how much that means to you, and that really I appreciate that. She's a wonderful woman, and yeah, she went she's in with real too, authentic. Amen. You know. I love her because she's found her lane. You know, I listened to NPR Bluegrass Bluegrass on Saturday night. Have you ever caught that on 90.3? No, I have never have. And she's on there a lot. Oh, yeah. Those Bluegrass records she made, you know, Mountain Soul, those are maybe the best records she ever made, actually. And I appreciate Emery. You know, he, he produced one of the songs that I really appreciate from the 90s because where a lot of modern artists today aren't showing a lot of love for the for the past and some of the legacy artists, he produced, I, I think he produced, you could correct me, I Don't Need Your Rocking Chair. He sure did for me. Uh, I signed George Jones, and he, he produced it. And then he brought in all the new talent to yeah, sing Clint on the chorus. Black and everybody, yeah. And for me, those are just great moments. I mean, what a moment must have been for the new guys to like have a nod from George. And you know, that, and that was, that was, I signed George just after CBS dropped him. But he, he was starting to get a little old, you know. But that was at the tail end of when he had just cut... Uh, Who's going to fill their shoes? All those great records. It's at Epic, man. Uh, Did George ever show up to the uh, studio on a on a uh, lawn, um, lawnmower? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, a ride you know, tractor. I actually, I actually, with Nora Wilson, cut the last duet album that Tammy and George cut. It was a it was a, a failure, but it was called One, uh-huh. and uh, we cut it just before George had that big wreck where it almost killed him. But uh, that was a strange dynamic being in the studio with george and tammy that was in 95 that's, that sounds about right yeah the first time they had sang together in like 15 right. years yeah and they said wow. they were sitting in the, in the studio and just bicker back and forth arguing with each other and uh and then george would go to the bathroom at rca studios and i, I would go to the bathroom and, they, and he had a guy standing there and said mr jones is in there you can't go in there i said that's a big bathroom he says Mr. Jones is in there. You can't go in. And he was in there drinking. Oh, wow. And and I would smell the vodka on his breath. And then it was uh, about maybe six months later, he had that wreck where he hit the bridge and almost, like, killed him, you know. But uh, I listened to that record recently, and I was going, God, I wish I had been a little more successful and more confident in myself. It could have been so much better. The songs weren't great, and the performances weren't great. I let Noro pretty much run the session i just kept quiet because i didn't feel worthy of speaking up for one Nora wilson was a legend himself because he wrote uh window up, up above and the grand tour so he, and he was friends with them so i didn't say much i just listened but I, I went back and pulled that record up recently on my on my itunes and listened going god i wish i had been more like confident and more successful i, I could have made a better record with, with them you know well, let me ask you this, because I'm glad that you've kind of been hitting on some of these moments that you had. I don't know if it's be described as insecurity or still trying to find your place, but getting into the late 80s, and I'll, I'll just reference a song that you produced more more recently, but Wave on Wave by Pat Green. Oh, man. You know, that's, an, that's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard, and it's a great song about triumph and struggle uh, and overcoming it and achieving things. Uh and love, I should also add. But when you get into the late 80s, 
how are you navigating dealing, you know, you had to let Patty go. How are you dealing with moments where you have struggled? Well, I, you know, but the late 80s, I, I was actually pretty successful by then. I, was, I think I was the executive VP at, at MCA. And uh, you're speaking of Pat Green, uh, I, w- I had actually gone to uh, Universal South by then. Oh, had you? When you I produced started, that? Yeah. Okay. And uh, Doug Morris, who was the head of the big head of all, all over Universal Records in the United States, had wanted us to sign Pat Green because Pat, Pat Green in Texas could sell out stadiums and arenas, but... He was an Americana kind of act, and, and he said, why wouldn't you not sign him? So he said, sign him. So me and Tim Dubois had to sign Pat Green. We're going, we've got to do it because the boss wants us to do it, you know. And then Doug Morris said, hey, listen, he called me on the phone. He's the big guy, so I'm going, Doug Morris is on the phone, so you take Oh, my God. Yes, sir, what do you want? He said, I'm going to come down there. And Pat Green just sent me three songs he will spit on this record. And Tony, we got to find a, a song that would get on the radio and listen to these three songs and tell me if there's one song you think would be could be a hit. They were just guitar vocals. And so I said, okay. So I, I listened. I said, hey, man, there's a song called Wave on Wave. Mm. He said, I thought the same thing. Well, Doug Morris is a good song guy. He's been known, you know, he for years. He worked at Atlantic and at Warner's and stuff. He said, I'm going to come down and do it with you. I said, great so he comes down and we go to the studio and pat green is from texas i mean he's big down there and so we tell pat he can bring one musician out of his band and that's a big no-no for him you can bring one guy we're using session players and that's like sticking a knife in his heart and he begrudgingly says okay i'll do it this one time for one song so he comes in, and so I remember this day. So me and Doug go to the studio, and Doug says, "I got an idea. Come, come with me." So me and Doug go in a room. And he said, "Listen to this." So he starts playing Mike and the Mechanics. Uh, all these, all these, all these years, all these years. I think it's called. Yeah, all, trials, tribulation. Yeah. And the intro is that dick, 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 that little guitar lick. He says, "I'm gonna play this intro on my on my little boombox here." And I'm going to turn it off, and you start singing wave on wave. So he did that. I said, that works. He said, that's how we're going to do it. I said, let's bring Pat in here. So I bring, hey, Pat, come in here. we got an idea. So I bring Pat in. I said, Doug, you know what's going to happen? Pat's going to think that instead of cutting wave on wave, you want him to cut all these living ears, and it's going to be a mess. So get ready for a fight. And so, so Doug says, okay, I'm going to play the intro, then Tony, you start singing, wave them away. And we did that, and so Pat said, okay, we'll give it a shot. Brilliant. It was brilliant. Oh, my God. I mean, it's one of my favorite records. We did one song. It's one of my favorite records I've ever cut. And I remember as we were cutting it, I was going, you know, sometimes people say, do you know when you cut a hit? And actually, after you cut a, a bunch of hits, and you know that the, everything's in line, like the label's in line. Everybody's lined up to make it happen. You got a good song. You got a good track. You know you got it. You so, were the right guy for that. And man. you know, and so we cut it. And, and to this day, I'll see Pat. I see him about once every two years, and he'll say, 
hey man, thanks for my house. <laughs> That's a gold record for him. Oh, it was it's huge. a big record for him. And it's one of the most beautiful. The reason I, I'm so glad that you did it was because it has a religious feel, maybe a little gospel, yeah, yeah, a little sure gospel does. feel. Yeah, sure it does. And you really captured that. And with your background, I was just like, what a perfect marriage yeah, for that, this that song. Yeah, that was one of those kind of things. And Doug Morris, with Doug Morris, I'm going, that record has trivia connected to it that's so cool. And I remember doing it. I was wondering, is this going to be like a, a, going to have a fight in the studio or what's going to happen? Is it going to work? And boy, did it ever work. And when we turned it in, the first response at the label was what you would think. They won't, pay, they won't play Pat Green. They never have. Well, they'll play this. Yeah. I don't think so. Well, give it a shot. And then pretty soon they put it out there and then all the promotion guys are going, man, it's blowing up in Seattle. Hey, man, it's blowing up in Atlanta. It's blowing up in Dallas. It's blowing up in New York. It was like, I was going to hit is a hit, you know? Amen. So I want to ask you about uh, the second year that I referenced earlier, 1989. Because on top of the class of 89, the reason the year is so important is it was a breakout year for Vince Gill. That's right. And it was kind of while Marty Stewart has been around for so long, it was kind of where he kind of got his launch. And there you are again. You know, you take Vince to another level and you give Marty his shot to really you start the restart. You know why that's so funny? That ties back into Copperhead Road. Uh, I've known Marty since he was 13. When I was a gospel singer, he, he worshipped the Stamps Quartet who I played with. And so he loved, he loved my hair. I loved his hair. And gospel quartets used to dress really fancy. And Marty always dressed fancy. So we, we connected. So we knew each other. And uh, he had cut those records for CBS just before Ricky Skaggs cut uh, Highway 40 Blues. And Ricky, and Marty's records didn't work, but they weren't good songs. Ricky Skaggs cut some killer songs. Man, it's all about songs. It's not just about the track or the vocal was about the song. And so Marty had failed miserably over there. So after I'm on the third record with, with Steve Earle, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, cutting the Copperhead Road, and Marty wheels up in a Jeep in the parking lot and says, Hey, man, you're going to sign me. And I'm not leaving here until you do, tell me you're going to sign me. I said, Marty, I can't just say I can sign you. I mean, I can, but... I can't say that she and me, Bowen, will let me. He said, I'm not leaving till you tell me you're going to sign me. I said, well, play me something that sounds like a hit, and I'll consider it, because everything you've done so far for CBS, they just aren't hits. I'm sorry, Ricky's cutting hits. So he said, well, I've been hanging out with Paul Kennerly. Let me play something. He said, we've been writing these songs called Beat Ballads. So he played me Hillbilly Rock. I went, damn, that's cool. He said, check this out. And he played me Tempted. I went, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. Then he played me Little Things. It's all this. He said, this, they're called beat ballads, and Paul Kennerly worshiped Buddy Holly. So all about that strumming, that real rhythm strum, you know? So I said, you got it. I'll go back and I'll sell this to, to, to the label. And we did. We signed him. And we had two or three platinum albums with him. He and Hillbilly Rock was a cool record to this day. I listened to it in... in uh, it still sounds good. It was one of those moments, you know, those serendipity moments where my old buddy Marty Stewart and I connected, and he was determined to talk me into signing him. I did. We went in, and he had a song, and we cut it right, 
and the rest is history. Now, because those hit songs gave him a platform, him and the superlatives can just play Marty Stewart music and sell lots of tickets and lots of merch. And uh, if you've never seen Marty Stewart and the Fabulous Superlatives, you got to go see them. I've seen them. The best country band out there for sure. I'm going to tell you a funny Marty Stewart story. Anytime I walk into Walmart, I sing this little this little song. Walmart, Walmart, I met my wife at Walmart. Why would I sing? What does that have to do with Marty Stewart? When I was like 12 or 13 years old, he was on Crook and Chase, and they said, what's the worst song you've ever written? And he goes, I don't know, but I think it's probably this, and he starts playing it. To this day, 30 years later, Every time I walk into Walmart, I can remember that hook. Ah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> you have to ask him. You should really ask him for me. Is this true that you actually I wrote will. this? I will ask him because I, I've, as of lately, I've been sort of hanging out once in a while with him and uh, Kenny Vaughn and Marty. I've been using Kenny on some sessions. And so uh, I'm really happy that Marty's having such such success. He's going to open up for Chris Stapleton, you know, Bridgestone oh, yeah. real soon. You know, one of the reasons I think Marty deserves so much success on top of being a true talent is that I love his – he's a true historian. He's, he's, he carries the torch, man. And the fact that he knows everything about the history and how important it is to carry it on and he continues to – you know, you can find most documentaries. He's in there giving analysis and helping people learn about the traditions of Absolutely. country music. You know, it's I mean, really the Ken, one of the, the Ken I, Burns thing. You know, they they always went back to Marty Stewart and Roseanne Cash, yep. people like that. Because Marty is a real true musicologist. Oh yeah, 100%. and and he's serious about it. Really serious. Uh, why don't you? Did you want to ask him that next question as a producer? <laughs> Or the uh, technological one? No, about... Um, oh, oh, like maintaining the artist's vision, right? Yeah. So my question to you is, like when you're bringing out like the best in an artist, when you're talking about how you let her go... Um, Patty Loveless. Patty Loveless. That kind of made me think of like, how, how do you balance maintaining an artist's vision and incorporating your own creative input? Like that... That's maybe a little different what you did, but when it comes to just working with an artist, how do you balance okay, that's maintaining good. their vision? I got an answer for that. You know, when I started working at MCA, March the 12th, 1984, I remember the date specifically. Wow. Jimmy Bowen said, T, when you're in the studio, just remember, it's not your record. It's the artist's record. You're there to help them if they need help. If they don't have a direction, you got to help them find a direction. But in the case of an artist, say like Ariba, uh, uh, Marty Stewart, or Vince Gill, they have a direction. But if if an artist needs direction, you got to step in. Otherwise, stay out of their way, and always listen if they have an idea to try. Try it out. Nine times nine times out of ten, it'll work. And I've always used that advice because most artists in the beginning, well, not all artists, they're naive, and but even the naive ones have a little little bit of a, a vision of what they want to do, and they have a, they have an idea of the session players they want to use. I mean, you know, I say I hired Brent Mason and Eddie Bears and Michael Rhodes. They go, I was hoping you'd get Brian Sutton. 
And I go, well, he's good. Okay, I'll hire him. But then there's times when you work with artists, they go, I want you to hire my cousin. <laughs> and you go, not until I hear him play. I mean, I can't take any chances, you know, because one musician can just shut a session down. Oh, my gosh. And it's expensive, you know, because if, if, you, if you hire musicians, the A of M contract, and you get nothing, you got to pay them. If you cancel the session before seven days, you got to pay them a full session. So time is money. But uh, I, I, I've always learned to follow and observe an artist's intuition about how to help them out with their vision or either maybe give them ideas to pull their to pull something out of them to say what are you trying to say you know is it like with Steve Earle the lyrics were more important than anything and even with Lyle Lovett even though in the beginning that first album he did that song she's no lady she's my wife and every every magazine said he was a misogynist that was just his weird like uh, Bobby Braddock weird sense of humor you know did you ever find yourself relative to how you're working with artists when you start having a lot of success? Were you always just a, a guy that felt, listened to something and, and went off how you felt? Or did working with a label ever make you start feeling like, what would the audience like? What would the audience like? like how did You know, you know, I, I sort of do both. I, I still go by my gut, man. I mean, the thing about it is I'm such a study when I was a musician, I never got myself in a gig I couldn't play. You know, I, I never accepted a gig that I could never play with uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> but, you know, Amy Lou and Elvis and Roseanne Cash and Rodney, I could play that. That's pretty much in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to, like, uh, songs or, or, the, or the feel of the track... Especially picking a song, I just go, I, I sort of know, I listen to radio a lot. I mean, I listen to radio, so I know what commercial music sounds like. I do love, I love hit songs. That's just, that's, when you go to a party, what do you sing? You sing hits. You don't sing that seventh cut on Lucinda Williams' album. You sing Desperado, Mustang Sally. You sing, uh, you know, you sing hits. So I've always gone by my gut, and I, I kind of think like a fan, I think I do. You know, I really do. And that's why when I go uh, to see an act like the Eagles in Bridgestone about a year ago, every song they, I love, they're my favorite pop rock band ever. And every song of theirs I loved, and their entire show is nothing but hits. I went and saw Justin Timberlake by himself when he did Bringing Sexy Back. Got talked into going with a bunch of friends. And I don't know one of his songs. But I, the, I think he's had that song, I've Got a Feeling, which I know that song now, but this is before that. Every song on that album, I never even listened to that album. I was so pissed, I got up and left because I wanted to hear NSYNC songs because <laughs> those are the songs I knew. So I think like a listener, a fan, you know. Yeah. And, and then, uh, but at the same time, I love eclectic stuff too like I, I love going to hear like a funk band that, that that are just so good they don't play hits I went like Joe go hearing Joe Bonamassa he doesn't play hits he's just good sit there for an hour and just hear like magnificence 
rhythms, and he's incredible. His band is incredible. If you deserve to be in that band, you got to be good. There's no room for slackers in Joe Bonamassa's band. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. You got to go. You're not good enough. Somebody said Ricky Skaggs was playing a show at a club, and some guy worked his way to the edge of the stage and told Ricky, said, Ricky, I want to sit in. And Ricky says, no, you're probably not good enough. <laughs> I can't believe that. You know, I mean, Kentucky Thunder is so good. That reminds me, I went to see, I made friends with uh, the guy with uh, a heavy metal band. What is their name? Uh, anyway, I went to a heavy metal concert. And uh, I just didn't get it. Like, I, don't, I don't listen to that kind of music. But I went just to see what was going on. I went backstage, and the guy that I, the lead singer for the heavy metal band, I can't, I can't think of the name of, said, well, I heard this is your first metal, heavy metal show. I said, he said, what did you think? I said, probably the same thing that you would think if you went and saw Ricky Skaggs and the Kentucky Thunder. It'd be right <laughs> over your head. <laughs> but I sat there and watched them play, and I was going, uh, man, I just, it, I just don't quite get it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I I love music. It doesn't have to be all hits. But I, but being an A and R guy and producing records, if you're gonna be an A and R guy, you better produce hits or you won't be there long. Amen. You know. Well, speaking of producing hits, yet another person that you have just had such a major impact on. In around '90, you start uh, producing Reba. Yeah, I you know I, Jimmy Bowen left to go to Capitol Records, and when he left. Reba and George fell into my lap by default. And my first thought was, oh, God, am I ready for this? Because I, you know, I had just had, my first gold record was a Rodney Crow record on Epic called Diamonds and Dirt. It was a gold record. Five number ones. But I never really had any big hits at MCA, so I get Reba when Bowen leaves, and, and uh, Reba said, well, I was just talking to my manager, and we said, who's going to do? Who's gonna produce me? And we thought, well, you work for Bowen. Let's let you do it. You probably know what to do. You've, you've watched him. Not that we think you're good. <laughs> I said, okay. So we go in the studio, and, and by then I sort of knew how, how it worked. You hire great players. You get a great engineer. You get a good studio. Great songs. So we had listened to thousands of songs. We go into Emerald Studios, and about the second day, she says, "Hey, listen, you know the song Fancy?" Mm. I said, "Yeah, I love that song. I saw Bobby Gentry sing that live when it first came out in Oklahoma City. She was opening for Glenn Campbell." She said, "I want to cut that," and Jimmy Bowen would, would not let me cut it. I said, "I'll cut it on you." She said, "Would you really?" I said, "Yeah, man, I love that song." So we cut that, and I think it's better than Bobby Gentry's version. Actually, I think. Her song is the hit, not Bobby's. Oh, yeah. People don't remember Bobby's version. Yeah, I've seen Bobby perform it on some show on YouTube, but that's the only time yeah, I heard but, her you know, it. Yeah, but I saw her open for Glenn Campbell in Oklahoma City in, in that little ukulele, and, and she, she had Ode to Billy Joe and that, too. Uh, but I went, went back to the office the next day, and Bruce Hinton, who had replaced Bowen as head of the label, said, I heard you cut Fancy. I said, we did. He said, how did it turn out? I said, it's a smash, man. He said, I was afraid of that. I said, what do you mean you're afraid of that? He said, don't you know what it's about? I said, it's about a girl that moves to the city. He said, it's about a prostitute. I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. 
I said, I never even thought about that. I never entered my mind. It's just, I just love the swappiness of that music, you know. So that's how that's how close I listened to that lyric. You know, now as I gotten older, I really focus in on lyrics these days. Like when I cut a song on George or uh, uh, like Vince, when we cut "Go Rest High on That Mountain," I, I knew that was going to be a. I knew it was a, a slow, slow song. I knew it was going to work, even though it was kind of a little bit dark. But I had no idea how big it would become as like the the funeral song for every country star that passes away. You know, it makes it become like a probably his biggest hit, probably his biggest song. One hundred percent. And and uh, Ricky Skaggs and Patty Lovely singing on that, just stuff like that. I remember when we finished it, I said we got to get Patty Loveless for sure. And Ricky Skaggs, he's, and he said, I don't know about Ricky, because, you know, Bluegrassers are always a little competitive. I said, no, I get Ricky. Come on, Ricky's and Patty and you. He went, okay, we'll give it a shot. And it worked out great. Did you did you pro- produce the song by Vince, Pretty Little Adriana? I sure did. It's a beautiful song. I love that, too. We, we got some great records on Vince. Vince's records were, you know, Vince... The thing about Vince, I first heard Vince when he sang with Pure Prairie League, and it wasn't Amy. It was that Let Me Love You Tonight. They'd become more like Poco, sort of poppy. So his records sort of encompassed. I knew he came from bluegrass, but his records never sounded that bluegrass. But we got some great, I mean, when I call your name, the reason I got to cut that was he was on RCA. I signed him to RCA, but I didn't produce him. Emory Gordy produced him. So when I came to MCA, I brought him over there. And I got him because... He wanted off RCA because Joe wouldn't let him cut when I call your name. And I said, well, let me hear it. And he played it for me. I said, God, I'll cut that on you. I said, if that's not a hit, I'll just quit. <laughs> he said, me too. And uh, it, it was a big, big, big song. Yeah. But his records, in, they, they encompass like pop music, a little, little bluegrass, a little Americana, a little bit uh, traditional, you know, I mean, a little bit of everything, and he's he's like to me one of the greatest singers ever has been, and he's a crown jewel in country music. You know, I wanted to ask you one more thing about Reba. Going back to Reba, she you you started producing her in '90, and I think around '91 '92 she suffered a tragedy when she lost her band, and I wanted to ask you what it was like working with her and seeing her strength in that time. You know, the the second record I did on Reba was called "For My Broken Heart," and and uh, the plane crash happened like a, a week or two weeks before the sessions were to be. We're going in. The, the sessions have been booked already. But the plane crash happened, and my first thought was, we need to cancel the sessions. We need to do it right now. And she said, no, I want to I go in. And I was going, oh, man. And so uh, we went in, of course, and I had Leland Sklar on bass, and I had like a killer rhythm section and it was it was really tense but Reba's such a pro she's that show must go on kind of girl and uh, the For My Broken Heart that song was not the first thing we cut we cut s- several really good songs I can't remember what, what songs were on that album but some great songs but uh, it was definitely it was definitely uh, undertone of uh, serious, serious stuff. And the last song that we cut 
which is the last song on the album called If I'd Only Known. She found that song at the just at the last moment, and, and the premise of the song is she she didn't get on that plane, and and you know her and Narville flew back separately. And the premise of that song is if I'd only known what was going to happen to you, I would have maybe said this, maybe done this. And so uh, she said, I just found this song, and it just sort of fits what happened. So we go in to cut it, and. Uh, I think we got one vocal, and if you listen to that that record, you can hear her. She's starting to break up and starting to cry a little bit before we've actually finished the track. But she could only sing it one time, and there was there was not a dry eye in the house. But uh, what a perfect song to finish the session with, because you know everybody was that was on their mind. And I think she just wanted to go ahead and go there, just mm -hmm. go ahead and just just go down there, go down that rabbit hole. And uh, and for my for my broken heart, I mean that title just ironic. That was the title of the album, and that that song was on there. But uh, that's when I learned about. I've always heard the term "the show must go on," and I just powered through it because I knew that she wanted to do it. And the thing to do was don't ignore it. Just don't dwell on it. Just work and 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 music. You know, music is the best healer there is anyway. And 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 that album sold four million records. And I've had a lot of friends of mine, and I cut like nine albums on Reba. And to this day, people come to me and tell me this the best record I did on her. And so I, every once in a while, I, I be at home and I go, I'm gonna go listen to that second one on a record or that third straight record I did 19 on him. I'm just curious what it sounds like, you know. It brings back memories of of a certain song like that maybe George had brought in or something, but I went back and listened to that record and I was going, God, this is a great record, and and uh, and I didn't know it had sold four million, but I was walking down my hall last night at my house, and I got my plaques on the wall and it's it's a four million seller, and I went, I had no idea, because you know why not his first record sold six million, my first George Strait record, Pure Country, which. That was I was scared to death to do that. That sold six million records. It's one of the best. And and uh, Bowen had said, "Don't ever use a B three on George Strait record because he doesn't like B 3 And I had booked a B three player on there, <laughs> and George loved it. <laughs> and I and I used instead of uh, on the fiddle, I used Stuart Duncan, who's the best bluegrass fiddle player there is. And uh, the, the the fiddle player that's in the Hall of Fame uh, from Texas, what was his name? I can't think of his name. I didn't use him. And and I, as I went into the session, I was thinking, George is going to just nail me right here on the spot. But, man, that's one of the best records that he ever did, too. Well, was, he sang great on it, too. I wanted to ask you about George and what that relationship has meant to you. So... Just for my understanding and the audience's understanding, is George the person you've cut the most records with? Yes, I've done 19, and I just finished his 20th record. Uh, he let me go eight years ago and hired my engineer to be his producer for two records and didn't really have any big hits on those uh, on those records. And uh, he was going in to do his, his next record in about 
three months ago, I sent him a song somebody had sent me. I just said, you should listen to this. Just emailed it to him, and my phone rang and said, blocked. <laughs> so I thought, this has to be George, because I have everybody in my contacts, and I have Vince in my contacts, but I don't have George in my contacts. And George says, I love this song, man. Why don't you co-produce this with my producer? I said, I will, but I don't have to. He can do it. He said, I want you to do it. So I ended up doing, he said, find me five or six more. So I ended up doing the whole album with him. Oh, wow. We got three. We, we're mixing uh, three more to mix next week, and then we're done. And I think we got three songs that could actually get him back on the radio. But this song I, that I found for him is it's all about, it's in George's wheelhouse vocally, but lyrically, it's what a guy that's his age should be singing about, you know. Not about pickup trucks or nothing like that. It's about it's about love. <laughs> What's your favorite George uh, Strait album? Man, I'd have. Or am to I s- putting you on the spot with that n- question? You know, no. People ask me that, and I, and I know they always do. It's a hard one. Probably Troubadour. Oh yeah. So we won a Grammy with that album, but I, I love that song, and I love that album, and I, I, that album just has it was a magic moment, you know. When I cut Troubadour, he always uses his background singers to sing the backgrounds. He doesn't use his band to play, but he uses his background singers. So when I got ready to do the backgrounds on that song. I had Vince Gill sing the, with Wes Hightower, who's his, one of his background singers. And I didn't, I didn't ask George could I do it. I just did it. So I called Vince, and I said, Vince, you know, we come do a BGV for me? He said, who is it? I said, it's George Strait. He says, well, hell yeah. Be right there. <laughs> And so I sent it to George, and George said, God, I love that. Who is that singing with Wes? I said, that's Vince Gill. He said, I thought so. He said, it's killer. He said, why'd you do that? I said, well, he was the last person inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame right before you, and this song's about you two guys. Just a troubadour. Wrote in on a song. I'll be an old troubadour when I'm gone. So it's about you two guys, and he should be singing on it. He says, it's fine, man. It sounds good. Yeah. But, but I, I've done things like that with George uh, along the way. River of Love, the background singers are Sean Kemp, Billy Burnett, and Dennis Morgan, the songwriters. And the reason I used them, because on the demo, they, they did the backgrounds on their demo. It was so good. It reminded me of the backgrounds on Bonnie Raitt album, Nick of Time, Sweet Pea, and all those guys that sang on... Uh, uh, those two albums, you know, the John Hyatt songs. And so I used them on that song for that reason. I didn't ask George either. I just sort of go by my gut and mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I got good taste, damn it. And I've got success, damn it. I'm just going to just run with this. And it worked. Speaking of Troubadour, I've seen George performing that with Alan in a great live version. and the C-Base? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And then you also produced uh, when they did Murder on Music Row. Murder on Music Row. Check out. So so Tony and I were enjoying some memes before the episode. So on that uh, desktop, Joey, right there under the tin, there you go. Hit that. I want to show Tony this one and see if we can make it. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So we got, we'll just, we'll just call him an unnamed country music artist who had a lyric. Girls, will you do me a favor? Pour another Jaeger. Shake your money maker. 
And then you have Alan and George undergoing, Alan, I think we found one of the murderers. <laughs> you know, I found that song, and I took it to George, and that's when Alan was, was having big hits, too. Oh, they were you both. found it for him? Yeah. Awesome. And it was by the guy that wrote it, and uh, I said, you know, this is funny. I mean, it's funny. And so I said, we should get Alan to do it with you. So Alan did. And I had never met Alan before that. I'd met him at BMI Awards and say, hey, man, I love your stuff. But I never met him. But when you cut a song, you spend like hours in the studio. You get to know him. And uh, George said after we, he cut that, people, some people thought it, that he was making fun of old country music. He said, he said I, can't, I can't seem to win. Is it a joke? Is this a joke? It's just a little, you know, underhanded little joke about uh, people playing rock guitars on country music. You know, it's. Yeah. But he said it's so funny because, it, but it's one of the few songs that got his first Grammy nom. I think. I think I think it was a great song to say. Maybe we need to stop and reverse course. Uh, there's another one I want to show him since we're talking about George and that Tony Brown file, and yeah, I think it's down, down, go down. There you go. I want to show him another one. Well, somebody sent me a picture of a George that said straight out of Compton. You see that? There's <laughs> <laughs> a hip-hop cover with George in the middle, and it says straight out of Compton. This is another guy. This guy farce the music makes hilarious memes, but uh, he's talking about three different artists that all fell off stage at different points in concerts, and then it's George doesn't fall off stage because the songs were good enough to entertain fans without all that ass shaking. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's, George is just, he's the king. He is. You know, he just walks out there and sings, man. And there's there's something about, it's a magnetism. It's just, you know, Cash and Elvis. I mean, when, I mean, Cash was bigger than life. And Elvis was a big guy, too. But they had they had a persona that was part of the deal. George is pretty much every man. Every man thinks I I, I kind of look like him. I can I can kind of sing like yeah. that. But he's bigger than life, man. Isn't that weird when you get an artist that's not too intimidating? Yeah, you know, we we, we cut like ten albums down in Key West, Florida, at Jimmy Buffett's studio, and the studio is so small. There's not a lounge to hang out in. So one day, me and George, and the and the studio is right on the on the uh, harbor where people park their yachts, like in the marina. In fact, George would park his yacht two two slips down away from the studio. So we were sitting on some folding chairs outside the studio, and George had a baseball hat on, and, and this couple walked by, like they'd just been to a bar, and this woman says, my husband said that George Strait's in there cutting a record. I told him he wasn't, and George says, well, sweetheart, I just in there. I didn't see him. Oh, wow. And she said, I told you he wasn't in there. And they walked away, and I said, Wow, man. He said, it's so great being so recognizable. <laughs> you know, following up on Reba and George, one of the things that's so, you know, amazing about you as a producer is you were able to take traditional artists but help them find some progressive sound to continue to grow an audience as they progress in their career. How did you balance that, or was that part of your strategy? Yeah, yeah. you know what? Like, for me, for me, like, I never— wanted to push George too far into the contemporary realm, but like run to me was, was a, 
take on that. Like the song Run has that synthesizer intro and stuff. And when I first played it for him, I could I could see the look in his eye like, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? But I said, man, you know, this is so you. It's melodically and lyrically so you. And it's just, it's just wrapped in this this synth, but it's so cool. And if you go see his shows, when he does that song, the intro starts, the crowd goes crazy. Oh, yeah. And I said, listen to the lyrics. If you ain't got a suitcase, get a box. Get an old brown paper sack. I mean, that's you, George. Come on. Wow. And uh, uh, I like pushing, but not too far. You know, I don't. I don't like being contrived. I don't like uh, trying to make an artist do something that's just not in their wheelhouse, just because it's cool. So, but I like pushing them just a little bit. Well, I also want to ask you about what it means to have, you know, been so important throughout the '90s as a producer. But you were also at MCA and. Pull, pull up that little ad that's on the desktop, Joey, please. So just so we understand, Tony works at MCA all through the 90s. And if you need a visual to understand what MCA was and what Tony and those guys were they were doing, you have it right here. Ten straight years, you guys? Ten straight years. Y'all are a little greedy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> couldn't share the yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't do any wrong, you know. But you know what? I give credit... To the staff, that staff, I mean, me, Jimmy Bowen, Bruce Hinton, Scott Borchetta, uh, Katie Gillen, Walt Wilson, everybody there, was the team was so in sync with each other. You know, I mean, we had meetings all the time. You know, we, we, we met a lot. And uh, Bowen used to do this thing. I was thinking back how smart this was. I don't think labels never do this anymore, but... After he and I would finish a record, he would get it mixed, get it mastered. It's ready to be sent to the factory to be printed, so it's finished. He would have somebody burn CDs for every employee in the office that night, just after before he goes to the factory, and give them a little folder with all the song titles in there and make them listen to the record and make comments about the songs and pick three singles. And he said, T, I want everybody in this building to know what in the hell we're doing late at night while they're at home watching TV. And I want them to know what's paying their paycheck. I don't want them to wonder. I want them to know. And so then he, everybody would have to fill it, fill it out. If you didn't turn it in, he'd, he'd go to your office, the mailroom. You didn't, you didn't send back your, your uh, response. I need it by the night. And then we would read them. It was interesting, you know. But I was thinking, how smart is that? Everybody, smart. everybody knew. You walk down the hall in the mailroom, guy, and go, "I love that new straight record, man. It's great, better than the last one." And I thought that's so important that we all knew what was going on, you know. It's important when you have an entire team, even down to the mailroom, feeling like they have ownership oh, and what's coming out of that place. Absolutely, and and that's that's what that ten years was. Everybody in that building knew exactly what was going on. There's another thing that you did, and you kind of touched on it earlier, but another thing that just I find so amazing about your career is when you were able to help country music broaden its horizon and attract a more diverse audience from all kinds of genres. And I'll just reference the three that I have off the top of my head. You have Common Thread that not only helps 
reunite the Eagles. Yeah, that was on Giant Records. I, I just I just did one cut on that. I did Vince did uh I can't tell you why. Right. But still a pretty important one with uh, Vince. Oh, it sure was. It's a beautiful and, you know, and, 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 and now he's singing with them. And that that's the only tribute record that was really successful since yeah, then. Yeah, triple platinum. And nobody's had everybody keeps doing these tribute records and they don't work. That one just worked. It was really and Travis had Travis Tritt had uh Take It Easy. Yeah. There were some big hits on that record. And that video led to the reuniting of that's the Eagles. Right, that's right. So the things now I could argue that Irving was trying to get those things set up because he was the Eagles manager right, and right. the head of Giants record. So I thought that he kind of had an idea of what might happen if he does all this. But Travis is definitely credited with it. And so that's a breakthrough moment for country to start uh, attracting that uh, classic rock genre. Right. Who might have been a little lost in the woods in the 80s. And then there's a documentary made about one of the most amazing albums ever that you and Don Wass did, Rhythm, Country, and that's Blues. Right. I mean, talk about, you kind of see some of this stuff in the in the press nowadays about Fast Car with Luke Combs and racial boundaries that people put up. Man, you were tearing them down in 94. Well, you know, the Rhythm, Country, and Blues was the vanity project for Al Teller, who was the head of all of, he was the Doug Morris of that era. And that was his brainchild. He says, you know, Tony, everybody says country music is the rhythm, country, and blues of the white men. So why don't we put legacy artists, rhythm, country, blues artists with country artists? Mm -hmm. it, sh it should work. And we never could get any airplay on that record at the time. But we did a PBS special, and it was a platinum album. And it just really, but it did open up a lot of things, you know. But I thought the fact that the label spent money to, to do that for music's sake, not for any, not because they thought it was going to get rich, like well, this will just blow out the stores, you know. Al, Al Taylor wanted to do it because he said, you know, rhythm, R and B is the white man's. I mean, country music is the white man's R and B, and and to do it for that reason was was good enough. And I remember going in the studio. With uh, Don, I was basically, I was listed as, I think, executive producer, but I was his valet. I just wanted to watch him work with those people because at that time, I, I'm i always in awe of stars, whether it be musicians. I've always been in awe of session players. I'm in awe of record executives like Clive Davis and Ahmed Erdogan and David Geffen and people like that. So Don had just cut Nick of Time with Bonnie Raitt. And what was the other one? I can't think of the other. Bonnie Raitt. Those were the two pop albums that were my favorite at the moment. So I just wanted to watch him watch him work. And he's a, he's a, he likes roots music, but he's got his pulse on the front and the back. He's sort of I want, I, I want to be around people like that. And I just watched him. So he would uh, help. He said, "You get the white you get the white artists, you get the country artists." And I'll get the, the legacy artist, you know, and we put like Gladys with Vince and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Do you know, I think that album is, is kind of, you know, you could argue that in Common Thread or kind of the early days of realizing that CMT Crossroads could be a legitimate show. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. And, you know, we we talked about this past year before Mike Dungan left uh, Universal about doing Rhythm Country and Blues too. Oh, please. But it was hard to, to redo that because... One thing, legacy uh, R&B artists, it does fit in with country artists like Gladys and Al Green. But, you know, like uh, hip-hop artists don't quite fit in with 
what they would with Jason Aldean, but it's not the same. It's not the same. And so we we got a, a little ways with it, then we thought, you know, like Tuskegee for for, for Lionel Richie, uh, Capital is going to do Tuskegee too, and they hired somebody else to start it. So I asked uh, Lionel, why didn't he finish it? He says, you know, Tuskegee was so great. And when we started two, it wasn't so great. And we thought, well, why are we doing this? <laughs> it's got to be as good or better. But he said, it's just something about it. it just it, You know, because there were a lot of songs we didn't hit, cover with Lionel on that for Tuskegee. But that, that album, as we were cutting it, you could just feel the magic in the room. I mean... Everybody that walked in there was just so magic. I just couldn't believe it. That that was a fun record to cut. Well, their crossover is so important for country music. You know, have you seen where they've been a little? Uh, there's been some criticism of Fast Car. I have not, but you know, Luke's Luke's version of that is bigger than Tracy Tracy's version. That's just so amazing, and his cut is basically not even a band. It's just a acoustic guitar from. A, well, I, I mentioned it because it's just strange that he, if his version becomes bigger, you know, I can go back to Whitney Houston taking Dolly, Wooden, uh, Dolly Parton's yeah. song and making it huge. You know, this is something you did as a producer that you showed that country music can cross genres. Well, and Fancy was that, basically. 100%. Yeah, big time. And, and, and I, Fancy was bigger than uh, uh, the original cut. Uh, I like it when music is a place where everyone can come together. And you know, and, and it's also cool when you know when a hit song fits crosses over. Like I mean, like I, I was remember watching the I love watching the Kennedy Honors every year at December. Yeah. I just love watching it because it that's when you covers everything from Broadway to screenplay writers, to choreographers, everybody the best of the best. And it was great to see that you know they Reba would just put in there Amy Grant, and so I remember watching it the year that. Uh, Paul McCartney and Merle Haggard were on the same year, and uh, they did Paul McCartney. They always have like a artist do the covers while they while they uh, honoree sits in the box with the president, right? And so after Paul McCartney, Aerosmith came out and sang "Hey Jude," and the whole crowd was singing "Nah Nah Nah." I was going, "God, that's amazing!" Isn't that beautiful? And then Haggard was the last one, and uh, and I think. Brad Paisley and Vince and Allison Krauss sang some of his songs. And I was going, I wonder how Haggard's going to hold up in front of this secular crowd. And they got the Silver Wings, and I think, I can't remember who sang Silver Wings. It might have been Brad. But as they started singing Silver Wings, it, it flashed to Michelle Obama and, and Obama and the crowd. Everybody in that audience is singing Silver Wings. I was going, you know, when you're good, you're just good. Amen. And when it's, uh, that's another one of those songs. It's so country, but that could be covered again by somebody eventually. I don't know who could do that. But Fast Car, that kind of blows me away that that song got as big as it did. It, it does me too. But I remember having the Tracy Chapman album back in 92. Oh, yeah. And I, I just, you know, your guy Elvis did this. I mean, he would take from all elements, oh, and he, it he made did, the music better. He did better. a Libby Newton John songs, you know. I just, I just get so mad when people act like we have to put walls up between genres, or like you know, certain people can't record certain people's songs. It's like music is the one place where the spirit should all be the same, and we should all live as one. You know what? It's going to become more and more of that now because 
there's so many artists now with streaming and stuff. I mean, people can make records in their bedroom, like Billie Eilish and her brother made that, made that record in their bedroom. You don't need bands. You just need a Pro Tools rig. And, uh, and now have you noticed a lot of songs, the lyrics or titles from uh, the lyrics of a verse or the titles of hit songs? Oh really? Have you not noticed that? Oh yeah, where they're starting just to pull. Yes, yeah, used to it used to pull like names like Hank Cash and whatever. Now now Straight is in there. You know, it used to be Hank Cash and Willie. Now it's Hank Cash and Straight. Listen, you should see the stuff that Joey and I go through on Chat GPT. We we get on there and mess with lyrics, and I mean everything you've ever played me that you've produced is all produced at home, right? Correct. Yep. It's unreal. And you and you know you, you don't need a studio anymore to do that. And and uh, I love the arguments when people start bitching about. Records are using loops instead of real drummers. The drummer should not be the centerpiece of the track anyway. But I think I, I get the impression that the drummers are bitching because they're taking work away mm -hmm. from them. But sometimes the drums get in the way. I remember when I signed Nancy Griffith, I saw her play at a little showcase, just her and a guitar. And then when I brought the, the label out to see her before I signed Nancy Griffith, you know, you know Nancy was a folk I, singer. Yeah, Americana. She had a full band, and my first thought was, I hope this band doesn't screw it up. They got a drummer and a bass player and a guitar player, but I should have known everyone that she placed in that band was there for a reason. They they played with her. They didn't they didn't just play loud, you know. I mean, I hate going to a showcase and. And uh, the band's just, everybody's just playing too loud. They're not playing with the artist. But, but Nancy, I should have known everybody in that band were playing with her. Yeah. And it was great. But uh, here, hearing loops on a, a record, I don't focus on that. I just focus on the performance of the artist and the song itself. And the, sometimes the loop just, I just want to hear the, the rhythm of, of the track, you know? I got a couple more questions for you about the drive to make it, so we'll tap into your motivational side. But I got to ask you one more thing about a great song that you produced in the early '90s, "Dust on the Bottle." One of my favorites. You think Creole Williams sold alcohol to minors? <laughs> uh, I got to meet David Lee the other night at a songwriting showcase. He's an amazing person. I really like him. I do too. And and you know he writes really simple. He's like Alan Jackson. He writes simple songs, but they aren't trite. But they're simple. But Dust on the Bottle, everything about that song, uh, the the rhythm of it is just the perfect, perfect. It's like it's like Wave on Wave. I remember when we cut that, I was going, "This is just so cool," and I'm and and it's it's played all the time on the radio. When I was a kid, before you went out at night uh, on the weekends, you had to listen to Fish in the Dark and uh, Dust on the Bottle. I love uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. I love that song. Those are both standards. Yeah. For, for, you know, when I was in high school. I, I mean, I, I, I love songs that make that that place of... I mean, Dust on the Bottle is not a standard, but it has that same ingredient of a standard, like My Way, or you know, yeah. that becomes standards. Well, it was for, for my age gr growing up. It was a very nostalgic song for yeah. us. Uh, but I, I love the fact when there's certain songs have that element that makes them so... I remember when I called uh, Willie Nelson to sing on this Bill Gaither record i did a, a tribute record for bill gaither with country artists and his manager said he only does standards and i was thinking well can you would because he lives and he tells me considered standards i don't think so but in my world they would be yeah. but you know they aren't standards like my way or fly me to the moon or something like that 
But there are country songs that are like this two you just mentioned, that "Fishing in the Dark" and uh, "Dust on the Bottle," that are just man, they're standards. Um, on the road again. Oh my god! <laughs> I, you know, Willie's, they start naming those. They start naming some standards. Yeah, let's just we could we could spend the next. Well, you know, you can't spend too much time doing it, but you have. Let's see. I walk the line. Yeah. I mean, I will always love I you. I will always love you. Something that it's amazing the simplicity of songs. It's, that's that what it is. I think that's uh, it's it's the simplicity of country music, and it borders on it never gets trite, but it's so simple that you can you can sing it the chorus by the second time it comes around. You know. Let me ask you about artists. Is there someone out there that you're looking forward to working with that you haven't yet worked with? Well, at my age, it's a young man's world, and uh, not everybody's wanting to work with an old school guy. But I still have some fire in my belly, so I'm still out there cutting records. But to me, the the artist that I feel like I could actually contribute to, I would want to only do something I could contribute to. My favorite group right now is Midland. Oh yeah, I love them. Good. And Lady A, those two. Those, those are the two acts that are top of my head. Lady A, that pop element of theirs I love. Midland, man, they got that West Coast country thing going down. They're a great band. I look forward to seeing what Charles Kelly puts out soon because you know he's back and feeling healthy and he's been very open. I love I love when people discuss their struggles. Yep. it can be very inspiring and to hear his art in the in the upcoming future is going to be fun. And you know, this new single, I, I like the chorus. It's almost I told him I saw him the other night. I said you sound like Lady A again because if the they need to stick to that formula that the, they have a sound when the chorus comes in and him and Hillary have that harmony. It's like when Glenn Fry and Don Henley, the harmony between the two of them was so magic. Uh, but Lady A, when they when they find that right song with Hillary and Charles, two great singers right there. Amen. Yeah. When I was watching you on Sonic Highways, on the Dave Grohl documentary, one of the moments that really registered where I felt like you had just reached out and punched me in the heart was when you talked about blind faith. One of the reasons we call the show Country Drive is we want people like you who have had a long, remarkable career to help people see what it took for you um, and your advice to them on how not just to work to get your 15 minutes of fame or make it, but how you can work to have a long, remarkable career and sustain success. So what is your advice to people? Because it kind of goes off with what you said on that documentary about blind faith. Well, you know, it's like, to me, I've always... I have this thing about me. I'm a little insecure, but only because I don't want to to feel like I know it all. But at the same time, I do know when I speak about something, I I know what I'm speaking about. I, but I used to love when I'd have somebody come into my office and they would say, "I hate to tell you this, but I, I don't write my own. I don't write my own songs." I went, "Well, that's great because now I can get some good Bob DePiro or." songs you know or they come in they go i write my own songs i said well play me play me your best song they go well, i like them all i said no don't play me the song if you at my house at a picking party and on the couch with Cheryl crow rodney crow and then you and then laura mckenna and chris stapleton 
and we're just sitting there, and Cheryl plays a song, and then uh, Vince plays a song, and then it's your turn. What, what song are you going to play? I said, play that song that everybody goes, play that song. I said, because when I see Rodney Crowell, he hates it, but I always go, Rodney, play till I gain control again. I think it's one of the greatest country songs ever written. He goes, oh, man. Because he's written more than that, but I want to hear him sing that song. Mm-hmm. I say, play that song that everybody goes, play that song. Because there's one song of yours that everybody thinks is your best, and you know what it is, and you're sick of it. Play that song. That's the one you play. You don't play, you just pick one. Just pick the one you know that this one always works. <laughs> you know, like uh, Creedence Clearwater, rolling down the river. I'm sure he'd play that. Never, it always works. Every country artist, if their show's not working, they do a cover. <laughs> and uh, I said, but play play the one that that is the one everybody knows is your best song. And you know what it is. And they go, they look at me sort of strange, but I know they know what it is. Because I know when somebody says, play me something you're proud of. I don't usually play them a hit. Because they've heard it on the radio, I hope. Wow. I play them an album cut. Like there's a song I cut on George called Poison. Mm-hmm. Pick Your Poison. And it's I'm so proud of it. I wish it had been a single, but it wasn't. But I love the, I love the sonically, I love it. Lyrically, I love it. I love his performance of it. And every time I play it, they go, God, that's amazing. Why wasn't that a single? And I go, see, I was right <laughs> to myself. You know, I just, uh, or I, I'll play something that's, I've got two records that I cut that never came out at Universal South. One on Katrina Elam, and I'll play that. They say, I love that. What is that? Well, it never came out. Why not? They said there were no singles on this record, so. But that, I'm really proud of that. Well, that's awesome. I'm proud of that. You know, well, I wish you. I wish you send me a copy of that. Uh, but you know, so uh, something I'm proud of doesn't mean it worked. I never got a chance to work. You know, that's why, like I say, you know, if the farmer's daughter never went to town, no one would have ever known she was pretty. <laughs> so. That's why when songs get on the streaming, the good thing about streaming is the consumer's finding things that radio won't play. Right. And radio, it got to the part where it's so political, like they would only play the, the single if you let them introduce George Strait when he comes to town. You know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So songs get played on the radio. I mean, a lot of country music today I just do not like that are hits. Well, they're, they're hits because they're like number five in Billboard, not hits in my mind. I'm going. I don't even like that. But then there's a lot of country songs that are hits that I do love. I mean, there's songs out now. I, I love uh, Luke Combs' Fast Car version. Yeah. And I love Tracy Chapman's, but I actually like his. It's good, believe it or not. So, uh, Zach Bryan, "Something in the Orange." It's it's a beautiful song. Forty billion streams. Wow. And I'm. I'm learning to dissect it, and I can dig into it, but I, I don't understand quite what makes it so big. But it connects, you know. Whatever connects is what works. Uh, with the dance, you know, the dance. But Garth Brooks, first time you heard that song, everything, everything about that song, every line, the piano intro, every, everything about that song. I, I just, I, I just love. 
songs and how they're put together. I, I love great lyrics. I love great great melodies. That's why when I go to a concert and I hear an artist sing a hit song and they change the melody because they're bored with it. They've sang it so many times. Now, if they change it because the note's too high, like sometimes El Elton will sing Tiny Dancer and he can't hit that high note, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let him go for that. But when artists change the melody just because it seemed like they're bored with the song, and, and the song was written specifically where that melody was written that way on purpose, you know? Because I know how songwriters spend time getting that melody where it falls off at the end on purpose. Right. And and that's, that's my, like, I got, like, pet peeves. That's one of them. That's one of them. And another pet peeve is backpacks. People wear backpacks on an airplane, and you're sitting in the aisle seat, and they turn and hit you in the head. That's a, that's another pet peeve. But songwriters, singers that sing songs, like I saw Bruce Hornsby do uh, one of his songs one time, and I thought, I think that's, I think that's the song. I'm not sure. He turned, had changed the whole melody, made it more of a jazz song, you know, from his first album. I can't think of the title of the song. But uh, I, I just, uh, I really love melodies, and I hate when, when artists, as they get older, they change the melodies for whatever reason. And I, I know they must get tired of singing them, but I don't get tired of I don't get tired of listening to the original record. Me neither. That's why I love to go and sing the Eagles. Don Henley insists every song. Vince says every song has to be exactly like the record, exactly, not close. I love that. Well, thank goodness, because that's how you have fun when you go to the concert, because then someone starts changing the lyrics or changing the way they sing it, and all of a sudden you're off rhythm. That's right. You know, I mean, and, and just and just songs are written specifically, I mean, melodies are written specifically a certain way on purpose. They tug at your heart, either, you know, hit you in the gut, whatever. Anyway, that's my opinion. I'll be yours. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate you, Tony. You know, you really are a living legend. You've created the soundtrack of a large portion of my life. Well, I don't think I'm a living legend, but I am just lucky. I've, I have been blessed. My career is a blessed career, and I have been so lucky. And, and, and I have songwriters, musicians, artists, engineers, to be thankful for because they participated. You know, like every, when a writer comes to me and says, thank you so much for cutting my song, I go, hey, back to you. Thank you for writing that song. You, you bought my house. Thank you. Well, before we get out of here, since we're getting close to the time, will you please pull up Tony Brown Enterprises? Dot um, com. Dot com? Yeah. Here we go. There, there it is. Now, is this the website where if someone wants to order your book? Yes. Okay. And, and then they can also see some, there's uh, some videos on there, but there, there's that little thing there from the Elvis introduction. I, I, I ripped that off of uh, the Sonic Highways thing. Yeah. We don't <laughs> ever know if we're allowed to play this stuff because of licensing. We hope we get to the point where we can, but well, there know, he is. I put it on my website because I, I, same thing, I thought I'd rather ask Forgiveness and permission. Right. <laughs> I've, I've been told that before. Why don't you try forgiveness before permission? Yeah. But as we get out of here if today. If you get a chance to go check out an album called Barefoot Jerry, called Watching TV with the Radio On, 
And there's a song called Two Mile Pike, and that's where I stole that from. Oh, okay. Well, listen, again, I really appreciate you. Hey, I pre- thanks for having me. And this and this crew is such a rock and roll crew. I feel right at home. I'm not a suit and tie kind of guy, so this it feels like I'm in the hood here. I'm I wouldn't. I I'm, wouldn't know what to do if I was in a suit and tie. <laughs> well, anyway, everyone at home, we appreciate you. And again, Tony, thank you one more time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun, you know, and I, and I love it when the interviewer knows what he's talking about. I've done interviews and I really started to get this interviewer don't even know who I am. They don't know my music. They don't know country music. And I can tell that you have a passion for all the things we've been talking about. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate that coming from you. It means a lot. But we are done for this episode. We really appreciate everybody being here. And that's about it for another Country Drive. Bye, y'all.